Today's episode is sponsored by Podacy. Podacy is an online community where you can discover and discuss top podcast recommendations with fellow listeners like yourself. This means that you can spend less time searching for a podcast that fits your interests and more time listening to new binge-worthy podcasts. Whether you enjoy true crime, mysteries, or storytelling, you'll find great podcasts recommended by Podacy's community of podcast superfans. Receive podcast recommendations tailored to your interests and tastes and based off the people you follow, so you never miss a great podcast again. Every Sunday, you get a newsletter roundup of the best podcast recommendations, playlists, and more in your inbox. Discover true crime and trending podcasts you wouldn't find otherwise access the top charts to view the top episodes being listened to across the app and connect with fellow podcast fans to discuss podcasts you love like ours podacy has been described by listeners as revitalizing the podcast world and a delightful app share your favorite podcast with podcast playlists similar to music playlists but for podcasts Podacy is available on any browser at podacy.fm, or you can unlock more features by downloading the iOS or Android app. Recommend your favorite episodes of our podcast on Podacy so more podcast fans can learn about it. Podacy is Odyssey spelled with a P, P-O-D-Y-S-S-E-Y. Follow us on Podacy to connect with us. Visit podacy.fm or the link in the show notes to check it out. The Oracle Network. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Do you want to tell all of our listeners where you're recording from today? I'm <laughs> so I just moved, and uh, things are still in complete disarray a day before I start work again. And we also don't have, like any real furniture. We have our bed and a desk, no chairs, and like some storage chests. <laughs> so I am in the closet <laughs> closest to my front door. <laughs> and I think this will be my new podcast studio because I think it'll be the perfect sound, but um, it's not ready. I'm on the floor holding my muffler thing. So <laughs> it's it's been a morning. It's been it's been quite the morning. I can't wait until Chief is here and he'll start trying to knock the door down because I'm in here. He'll think I'm dying. <laughs> I need to rescue mom. I know you don't, but it's okay. You don't need it. It's going to be great. She's dying. That's why we have baby gates. <laughs> well, since you're no doubt going to be like sweating buckets here shortly, yeah. I will jump right into it. Thank you. So today we're going to be discussing King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Ooh. Are you familiar? Sounds chocolatey. Count chocolate. Chocolatey. <laughs> Just call him King Chocula. Yeah. I know it's more like Bavarian cream, but it's fine. Because Count Creamy sounds like a porno. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it does. <laughs> Before we even start, obviously, since you know it's in Bavaria... 
there's going to be lots of foreign words that I'm going to be doing my very best to pronounce correctly. But there is one source that I did not translate. Uh And when I listened to it, I was like, there's no way in hell I can say that. So I'm going to use Google Translate to say it when I get to that point. Because I attempted it last night at like midnight when I finished my notes and it wasn't going to happen. I was like, I listened to it like five times and was like, yeah, no. Skynet will take care of it for you. Yep. So information was pulled from the following sources. A 2014 Spiegel International article by Frank Thaddeus. 2011 The Atlantic article by Alan Taylor. 2007 Spiegel International article by Connie Newman. Cambridge University Library article by L. Noble. Exploring Castles article. Fascinate website. And here's the Google Translate. Let's see if you can hear it, Maddie. Schloss Neuschwanstein, Bayerische Schlösserverwaltung. I just heard... <laughs> like very faintly. <laughs> Perfect. It sounds legitimate. And then Special Travel International website and Wikipedia. As always. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. The future king of Bavaria, Ludwig II, was born on August 25, 1845, in Nymphenburg Palace in Munich, to parents nice. Maximilian II of Bavaria and Marie of Prussia. Uh, all very strong names. Yes. Them. He was the eldest son, and even though his birth is listed as August 25th, he was actually born on the 24th. Many believe that the date was changed to tie him more closely with his grandfather and namesake, King Ludwig I. Weird, but okay. We'll go into it. Okay. Ludwig's parents were crowned in 1848 after his grandfather abdicated the throne during the German Revolution. Fun fact, Ludwig was originally going to be named Otto, but his grandfather insisted he be named after himself. And also because of the fact that their birthdays happened to be on the feast day of St. Louis IX of France, who is the patron saint of Bavaria. Okay. Ludwig's full name is Ludwig Otto Friedrich Wilhelm. Damn. Ludwig is the German equivalent of Louis. So that's where the connection comes from. King Louis. King Louis of Bavarian cream. (laughs) Delightful. His parents would later name a son Otto, like they originally planned, when his younger brother was born three years after him in 1848. Was he the favorite? Because uh, he took because he took the right name. Well, uh, we'll we'll go into it. Like his grandfather, Ludwig was a great lover of the arts, and the two were very close. Ludwig wasn't as close to his parents as he was to his grandfather, but even still, his father made sure that Ludwig had the best of the best growing up so that he would be a great king once it was his time to rule. That's good. I mean, that should be a given, but sure. In fact, the king and queen didn't particularly care for each other or their children, for that matter. Fun. So So there was was no favorite. It was a marriage of convenience only. Pretty much. It was a marriage and name only. Awesome. That would suck. Yeah. You don't, you don't even like the person you're with forever, but you have to like make choices. Yep. Yeah. Not fun. 
However, they ensured that they were raised with an emphasis on duty, not only to the crown and their country, but to Roman Catholicism as well. Oh, okay. Now we're about to get dark. Yep. Ludwig hated his strict upbringing and had no real desire to take over the throne. His relationship with his parents was so bad that he is even quoted as referring to his mother as, quote, my predecessor's consort, end quote. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Um, I could never. Yeah. Never, ever, ever do that to my mom. I love you, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to my mom. I know she listens. Even though he had a younger brother, Ludwig's childhood was pretty solitary and a little lonely, since he was essentially being groomed to be the next monarch. Mm -hmm. His best friend was his cousin, Duchess Elizabeth of Bavaria. Uh Uh-oh. It's okay. The pair lovingly (laughs) referred to each other as Eagle and Dove, and shared a love of nature, poetry, and horse riding. That's cute. So nothing weird happens? Nothing weird happened. Not even alleged? Nope. Awesome. Yay, that's a really cute relationship. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like how they refer to each other as eagle and dove. Like, that's just right? so pure. I mean, it is, but, like, doves suck. So, like, pick a better <laughs> bird. <laughs> doves are trash. <laughs> Maybe they're not trash in Bavaria. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're, like, much better than, like, the morning doves that we have here. I can't. <laughs> at like three in the morning it's like the sun's not even out it's not morning yet you dumb dove shut your face shut your shut your mouth growing up ludwig spent much of his childhood growing up in hohenschwangau castle Dang. which was essentially a modern mock castle that his father had built okay ludwig had an active imagination growing up partly due to the fact that he was often alone. So as a prince in a castle, Ludwig became obsessed with medieval legend, fairy tale castles, and chivalry. That's so cute. This is an obsession that would continue throughout the rest of his life. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) A little less cute, but like still a little endearing at this point, I suppose. You could call this. Because I mean, like... I grew up with fairy tale books and stuff, and I like reading fiction, but I wouldn't say it's an obsession. Yeah, we'll go into it. Oh, no. Okay. Ludwig has been noted as saying to his governess, quote, I want to remain an eternal mystery to myself and others, end quote. To yourself, too? I don't know who I am. Okay. Who am I? How did I get here? This is not my beautiful palace. This is not my beautiful wife. As the days go by. Well, you better stop. (laughs) David Byrne, we're sorry. (laughs) In a rare show of familial love, Ludwig's father took him to see a performance of Townhausa by Richard Wagner when he was 15. This performance would have a profound impact on Ludwig as it instilled in him both a great love for the theater, but also for the works of Wagner. Okay. In 1864, Ludwig's father, King Maximilian II, died quite unexpectedly from sepsis. Oh, shit. Yeah, you died really quick and not well. Yeah, after a three-day-long illness, leaving the country of Bavaria in the hands of his eldest son. Who was how old? Ludwig was 18 years old when he was crowned the new king in 1865. Oh, no. 
And as you can imagine, based on his views growing up, he was less than thrilled at having to deal with political and state matters. Yeah, he just wanted to deal with wizards. (laughs) (laughs) Lightning bolt, lightning bolt. (laughs) Death. However, now that he had the power of the monarchy at his disposal, his first decree was to have a court theater established. Okay. I mean, feed the people, but sure. Let's let's do that too. That's fine. The theater, the Staatstheater am Gert Narplatz, uh-huh. is still in use to this day Damn. and hosts on average, pre-COVID, more than 200 performances a year of operas, ballets, and musical theater. That's awesome. Ludwig did continue to uphold the state policies that his father had put into place Mm -hmm. and continued to keep his ministers as part of the cabinet. That being said, his real interests lay in art, music, and most famously, architecture. Ooh, I like where this is going. Ludwig would later in life become one of Wagner's biggest supporters and even gifted the composer a home in Munich after meeting the composer in person. Okay. The pair talked for almost two hours when they first met on May 4th, 1864, but Wagner, then 51, was very worried about the young king. He's quoted as saying, quote, Today I was brought to him. He is unfortunately so beautiful and wise, soulful and lordly, that I fear his life must fade away like a divine dream in this base world. You cannot imagine the magic of his regard. If he remains alive, it will be a great miracle, end quote. Oh, that's ominous foreshadowing. (laughs) The people of Munich, however, weren't as impressed by Wagner and the extravagant (laughs) lifestyle that Ludwig provided for him. What? I know, plot twist. That never happens. In fact, they chased Wagner out of town, and Ludwig was so upset by this that he even thought about abdicating the throne entirely, but his friend Wagner prevented him from doing so. Yeah, okay. After his exile, Ludwig continued to support the composer and provided him with the Triebschen home in Switzerland until Wagner was able to return to Munich. Throughout his life, Ludwig was a huge supporter of the arts, and through his efforts, the works of Shakespeare, Mozart, and Ibsen were brought to the people of Munich. Okay. Two years after his coronation, Bavaria was pulled into the Franco-Prussian war conflict after Germany conquered both Austria and Bavaria. Essentially, Bavaria ceded their status as an independent kingdom in order to become part of the North German Confederacy, making Ludwig a puppet king that was forced to perform the whims of the new German emperor and take part in his wars. Yep, that's what happens. Ludwig had zero desire to appear publicly to support this union, even though he was obligated to do so. Okay. The young monarch sent his younger brother Otto and his uncle Luitpold to the unification ceremony in his stead, which I'm sure left quite an impression. Yeah, I bet they didn't like that so much, especially since they're supposed to be controlling him and he's not listening. Yep. Ludwig took the loss of Bavaria to Prussia very hard, and it haunted him for the rest of his life. He yearned, as he had for most of his young life, to serve as a powerful king like the medieval kings of old, instead of the puppet monarch he now was. Okay, well, you didn't even want to be king in the first place, so like, yeah. breathe. While you would think that giving up Bavaria's independence in order to join a larger confederacy of nations would turn the people against him, that simply wasn't the case. Ludwig was extremely popular in more ways than one. Okay. 
He was devilishly handsome and often rode through the countryside in disguise in order to give the kind and hospitable farmers he encountered there gifts and large sums of money. That's nice. Regardless of what the outside world may think of him, the people of Bavaria viewed their young king as a romantic hero of the people. In fact, they often referred to him as the fairy tale king. That's exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. He was extremely popular with the ladies. Uh, kale surprise. <laughs> In January 1867, at the age of 22, Ludwig and his cousin, the Duchess Sophia of Bavaria, got engaged. Sophia was the youngest sister of his beloved Elizabeth, or Dove, as he called her. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm sure having Elizabeth as a sister would have made him immensely happy, it wasn't meant to be. Okay, good, because they're still cousins. Yep. The engagement was postponed several times before it was finally terminated in October of 1867. Okay. Why is that? The reason was never officially given, but Ludwig was noted as writing, quote, your cruel father has torn us apart, end quote, in a letter to Sophia. Hmm. It was, in all likelihood, for the best, as all the pair really had in common was their mutual love of the works of Wagner. Yeah, that's not really enough. But, you know, well, and the fact that they're cousins. So Yeah, that too. And the fact that, like, he didn't have any real like semblance of a stable marital relationship with his parents being Mm -hmm. as they are. But he could have gotten a lot of his romantic ideals from all the books he read too. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. There are those who speculate that the reason for the break could be because of the monarch's homosexuality. Oh, damn. (laughs) What? which was illegal at the time. In his private diaries, Ludwig often noted his inner battles to suppress this aspect of himself that many would view as shameful. That's awful. In fact, even though he had been heavily pressured to marry and produce an heir, Ludwig never did nor had any known mistresses. He expressed in his private diaries his struggles to remain true to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Even though being homosexual in Bavaria hadn't been punishable since 1813, once Bavaria became part of Germany after the unification in 1871, paragraph 175 was instated, which criminalized homosexual acts between males under Prussian hegemony. Awesome. Germans really, they were uh, quite the group early on. Quite, Quite the group. Throughout his reign, he would have a handful of close friendships with men, which included his chief equerry and master of the horse, Richard Horig. Master of the horse. Yeah. The Bavarian prince, Paul von Thurn und Tuxis, Hungarian actor Josef Keynes, and courtier Alphonse Weber. Sounds like a good group. Mm-hmm. In 1873, Ludwig wrote about his coronation. So he's like... Thinking back. Quote, I became king much too early. I had not learned enough. I had made such a good beginning with the learning of state laws. Suddenly, I was snatched away from my books and set on the throne. Well, I am still trying to learn, end quote. Yeah, but like it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like that's good on you, but also like (laughs) could try a little harder. Yeah. You've got one job. The professional relationship between Wagner and Ludwig was a partnership that benefited both of them. I bet. 
Wagner wouldn't have achieved the level of success that he did if it hadn't been for Ludwig, and was in fact almost destitute before gaining the monarch's attention. Yeah. And Wagner, whose works were based on German mythology, became Ludwig's muse, inspiring his theatrical projects and the many castles that he would have built during his lifetime. Yeah, that makes sense. I wonder if there was, like, I know that it was a mutual benefiting relationship, but I wonder if there was more, like, romantic endearment on Ludwig's side, maybe. Because he loved him for so long. I think you can love the idea of a person more than actually being, like attracted to them, you know? Well, and I think he loved him in a sense, like he was able to bring to life all of the things that he grew up loving. Yes. So that was part of his connection to him. Like he, so he kind of viewed him as... He gave his fantasy world color. Correct. Yeah. Ludwig was obsessed with castles, which most likely stemmed from his childhood desire to live in a fairy tale. The palaces and elaborate castles that he had built over the years served a variety of purposes as stages for performances of Wagner's many works and refuges from the demands on Ludwig's time as a monarch. My job's hard. I'm just going to go leave and go to this (laughs) castle. Pretty much. Okay, bye. Ludwig had a palace built in Linderhof that was his private residence hidden in the Bavarian countryside. Nice. It allowed him to hide away from the rest of the world as it was designed for only one person. Oh, so it was just like, it was like a tiny home castle? Yeah. It was in Linderhof that signs of his eccentricities could be seen. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He had a large statue of Marie Antoinette installed in the front hall, and he would caress and kiss her cheek as he passed it. Um, Okay, but like, she got murdered pretty harshly, but like, sure. Okay, okay, okay. Unlike many of his more elaborate castles, Linderhof has only 10 rooms, four of which are for the servants themselves. <laughs> Less of a tiny home now. <laughs> 10 rooms. <laughs> In fact, the dining table was also designed so only one person could eat at it. It was at this time, in roughly 1875, that Ludwig started living at night and sleeping during the day. Uh-oh. <laughs> He would also travel at night in elaborate coaches and sleighs, oftentimes while wearing historic costumes. Okay. Knowing this, it may not surprise you to learn that by 1876, Ludwig refused to continue to hold state banquets or attend any military functions. No, and now he's the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at me! In fact, Linderhof was the smallest of his three major castles that he had constructed. Mm-hmm. He ended up constructing a total of five. Okay. And the only one he lived long enough to see completed. By the time construction stopped in 1866, he'd spent more than 8 million Deutschmarks on it. Do you, how much is that with us? Around 40 million today. Okay. And that's just one of them. That's on his smallest one. He sucks. Ludwig, who was a great lover of architecture, as I said, Uh had a palace constructed on a floating island in Germany's largest inland lake, Kimse, in a style similar to the Palace of Versailles. Of course. Here on Kimse contained elaborate French paintings and emulated Versailles as closely as one could, but on a much smaller scale. Okay. 
His royal apartment in Munich featured a private garden and a variety of elaborate set pieces, such as Indian fishing huts crafted out of bamboo. Oh, okay. Ludwig's most famous castle is Neuschwanstein Castle. Construction of this dramatic palace, which was built to emulate the medieval castles of old, began Mm -hmm. in 1868. The limestone structure is built on a rocky cliff ledge, allowing for a dramatic and picturesque view of the Alps. Okay, well, yeah, but it's a lot of money. So this structure was never completed, but it was originally designed to have 200 rooms. Damn. Ludwig's love of Wagner's works began to border on obsession later in life. Yeah. In fact, Neuschwanstein Castle was in essence an homage to Wagner. Okay. The interior depicted murals of the legends that were described in Wagner's pieces, and even his stage designer, Christian Junk, was hired as the lead architect for the castle. So he would hire like set designers to design his castle because he wanted them to be so fanciful. I mean, I get it, but like, don't. They're not architects. <laughs> they're not. And like, they're very good at what they do. But like, it's like asking a bricklayer to build a ho- like build a whole house and like fully do the electrical and do the plumbing and do like, they have a skill, but like, just let them do the one thing. Yeah. Other motifs that heavily decorated the interior of the castle were those of the poet Townhauser and the story of the Grail King. The Grail King is a medieval legend of a pauper who rises to the rank of king due to his pure soul after winning the inner battles he had with himself over his sins. Okay, that's different. An interior grotto made of artificial rocks and flowing waterfalls along the corridor of the castle pays homage to Tannhausa. A common element is the motif of the swan which plays a big role in Christian literature, as well mm-hmm. as with the character of the Swan Knight. Okay, that makes sense. Later in life, as Ludwig began to withdraw within himself more and more, he mm-hmm. began to dress like mythological characters from Wagner's works and as the okay. Swan Knight. Yeah, okay. The character of the Swan Knight is noted as one that dealt with tragedy and everlasting loneliness. <laughs> As a loner himself, it made sense that Ludwig would identify with such a character. That's awful. Yeah. Sadly, the castle was never finished. Built as a shrine to Wagner, the composer never even set foot inside it, having died in 1883. Yeah. It's said that Ludwig took the composer's death extremely hard. I bet. Falkenstein Castle was the last of his creations, started just before he died. Designed in a Gothic style at an elevation over 4,000 feet, it was meant to surpass Neuschwanstein. The architects designed it as elaborately as possible, knowing that it would never be built. Well, that's one strategy, I guess. As you can imagine, Ludwig's preoccupation with building castles instead of ruling his country started to cause a bit of a problem. What? No, that's surprising. He frequently neglected his royal duties and instead Mm -hmm. focused his energy on building more and more outlandish castles. Why not? Although many believe that Ludwig was spending the country of Bavaria's money to fund his fairy tale endeavors, this Mm -hmm. simply isn't true. Throughout the course of his building sprees, Ludwig accrued a personal debt of 14 million Deutschmarks by 1885. So he was using his own inheritance, which had already dried up. Yes. So he was using his own money from his family account 
But, like, isn't that still kind of the people's money? Yeah. You know? (laughs) Theoretically. (laughs) Today, that amount would be the equivalent of almost 70 million Deutschmarks. Awesome. Gross. This obsession with creating new designs that emulated famous palaces around the world not only wasted much of his time and money, but created Mm -hmm. lasting damage for Bavaria itself. He begged foreign governments for loans to finish his construction projects and was unable to temper his excessive spending. In fact, many foreign banks threatened to seize his properties altogether. Yeah, I bet. It wasn't long before his advisors started plotting ways to remove Ludwig from his post as king. About time. There was no constitutional way that he could be voted out of power. But if he was too ill to rule, that was another story entirely. Oh, no. His uncle, Luitpold, agreed to take on the mantle of regent in Ludwig's stead, only if they could prove that his nephew was, in fact, mentally unfit to rule. Um, have you seen him in his swan knight uniform? (laughs) (laughs) That might give you a hint. Between the months of January and March of 1886, a number of rebelling ministers conspired together to assemble a medical report that would allow them to depose Ludwig. The report was compiled by Maximilian Count von Holstein, who used bribery and his high rank to get as much gossip and complaints about Ludwig as he could to ensure he would be forcibly removed from the throne. Sounds about right. Observations were compiled from a number of servants that included the fact that he would wear a coat in the summer and enjoy eating outdoors in the winter, that he was pathologically shy, avoided state business, had sloppy and childish table manners, and made abusive, sometimes violent threats against his servants. I gotta say, with a lot of those, we'd all be considered mentally ill. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) Ooh, I'm mentally ill. (laughs) Ah, dang. We'd all go to jail. Or whatever the consequences are for this. Yeah. You probably won't be surprised to hear that on June 8th, 1866, four separate government-sanctioned psychiatrists, Dr. Bernard von Guden, who was Mm -hmm. chief of the Munich Asylum, Dr. Herbert von Grashei, who was Mm -hmm. Dr. Guden's son-in-law. Okay. Dr. Friedrich Wilhelm Hagen and Dr. Max Hubrich found the 40-year-old monarch to be suffering from paranoia and declared him mentally insane, even though he had never been previously diagnosed with anything of the sort or examined by any of the psychiatrists themselves. I think he was just somebody who was never told no. The report concluded with the following, quote, Suffering from such a disorder, freedom of action can no longer be allowed, and your majesty is declared incapable of ruling, which incapacity will be not only for a year's duration, but for the length of your majesty's life, end quote. Dang. One psychiatrist, Bernard von Guden, is quoted as saying in his diagnosis, quote, he is teetering like a blind man without guidance on the verge of a precipice, end quote. Okay. As a result, Ludwig was immediately forced to abdicate the throne at 4 a.m. on June 10, 1886, under duress, and was essentially kicked out of Neuschwanstein Castle, where he had been living. Yeah, that's not the best way to do it, guys, but okay. So a commission was sent to arrest him so he could be put into the custody of Dr. Gudin. 
At the time, Ludwig holed up in his castle for two days with a private army and 36 armed guards. It was only as he was trying to escape that he was caught in the early hours of June 12th. Okay. He is famously quoted as saying to Dr. Gooden, quote, How dare you declare me insane? You've never examined me before. End quote. Sounds about right. He's not wrong. It is at this point in our story that fact and fiction start to merge into a bit of a conspiracy theory of sorts. All right. Mad King Ludwig, as many had taken to calling him, was taken to Berg Castle near Munich by Dr. Gudin. The castle had been transformed into a one-man asylum of sorts, with locked doors and barred windows. Not good. Following dinner on June 13th, Ludwig asked Dr. Gudin to accompany him on a walk along the shore of Lake Starnberg shortly after 6 p.m. So he could murder him. It was there that he was later found floating after he didn't return back to the castle by 8 p.m. as promised. Oh, he got murdered. A search party was dispatched, and two searchers, along with a fisherman named Jakob Lidl, discovered the bodies of both Ludwig and Gudin floating in the shallows around 11 p.m. The former king's watch had stopped at 6.54 p.m. Many ruled it as a suicide after he was forced to give up his title as king, but there are others who believe it was something more sinister that took the former monarch's life. The supposed suicide of Ludwig took place just three days after he was deposed by the Bavarian government, and his mm-hmm. uncle, Prince Luitpold, was declared as regent until his brother Otto could ascend to the throne later that year. Okay. What tends to be forgotten is that Guden himself was also found dead in the lake. But why would a psychiatrist also choose to end his life? Yeah. There are many that believe he didn't. There are reports from fishermen who had been near the bank of the lake during the night in question that state Mm -hmm. they heard shots being fired. Many historians, including an author from Berlin named Peter Gloves, believe that members of the Bavarian government hired two assassins to ensure that the former monarch wouldn't cause problems for the country in the future. Mm. It's believed that they hid in a boathouse by the lake and shot Ludwig and the only witness to the crime, the unfortunate Dr. Gudin. Yep. It was collateral damage. You might think that it would be pretty obvious during an autopsy to tell if Ludwig had been shot. You'd be correct if a thorough autopsy had actually been performed. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Immediately after his death, the autopsy that was conducted by Ludwig's doctor in 1886 was extremely sloppy, giving no mention of the usual telltale signs of a drowning victim such as foam in the mouth and nose, or lake water in the lungs. Yep. Not to mention, Ludwig was a strong swimmer, and the water was less than waist deep where his body had been found. Yeah. There's also no reference to gunshot wounds in the autopsy. Interesting. There are those who believe that the doctor who performed the autopsy was pressured by the Bavarian government to keep mum about the gunshot wounds and to label it as a suicide by drowning. Government doesn't do that. It's unclear what the autopsy of Dr. Gudin listed as his cause of death, but it is said that his body bore signs of violence, such as signs of strangulation and bludgeoning, along with a broken finger and scratches on his face, leading many to speculate that Ludwig had strangled him to death before taking his own life. Mm, maybe. 
Recently, a professor that works at the clinic of Munich's Technical University, Hans Forstil, worked his way through an archive of secret Wittelsbach family documents and discovered okay. that Ludwig suffered from frontal lobe atrophy. Uh-oh. In layman's terms, that means that the front part of his brain had shrunk. This is backed up by the fact that the autopsy report listed the former monarch's skull as being particularly small. Mm-hmm. Professor Forstil surmises that the frontotemporal degeneration could explain Ludwig's fascination with building castles, as yep. well as the aggressive behavior he apparently exhibited towards his staff of servants. Yep. People who suffer from frontotemporal degeneration are typically obstinate, selfish, mm-hmm. tend to yep. daydream, and prefer mm-hmm. isolation. Yep. But none of these symptoms would have compelled Ludwig to commit suicide. That's true. In an article that was published in 2014, a Mannheim-based psychiatrist named Heinz Hofner looked into the case of King Ludwig II to determine if the Mad King was actually insane. He and his team published their findings in the History of Psychiatry Journal, and their conclusions directly contradict what the good Dr. Gudin determined, stating that at no time did Ludwig's behavior, quote, provide reliable evidence of his purported mental illness, end quote. What? Some of his behaviors were unusual, putting his country into potential debt because of his various building projects and his occasional bad behaviors toward his staff. But none of that really warrants being labeled as insane. Nope. In fact, Hoffner discovered that Ludwig worked harder than his father did before him. Each year, even though he hated being the monarch, Ludwig reviewed 800 documents that related only to domestic Bavarian affairs. And a few days before he was dethroned, he sent out documents to relevant ministries regarding state matters, you know, like doing his actual job. Yep. Some believe that the king had suffered from the effects of chloroform, which at that time was being used as a way to control chronic toothaches. Could be. That's a weird way to control toothaches, sure. Yeah. It is believed that his dethronement was more of a family coup to get rid of what they believed to be an embarrassment. His uncle, who took over until Otto was crowned in 1886, didn't even want the throne. Another tick against Ludwig was the fact that his war minister, Josef Maximilian von Marlinger, was mm-hmm. forced to leave his post in 1885 because the monarch kept recruiting his lovers from the minister's cavalry unit, the Bavarian Chevalegars. Hey, I mean, do what you gotta do. Another bit of anecdotal evidence that points to Ludwig being murdered is the rumor that Countess Josephine von Verbnekaunitz, who was a distant relative, had in her possession a gray jacket with a bullet hole in it that had supposedly belonged to Ludwig and been on his person the day he was murdered. This jacket was lost, however, in a house fire a few years after she revealed it at a tea party. Surprising. Distant members of Ludwig's family have repeatedly denied access to his remains to conduct an accurate postmortem with modern scientific equipment, so the mystery surrounding his death continues to this day. Mm-hmm. Following his untimely death, an elaborate funeral was held for Ludwig on June 19, 1886, and his remains were interred in the Mikleeskirche crypt in Munich. Per Bavarian tradition, his heart was placed in a silver urn and sent to the Nadenkapelle, which is the Church of Mercy, in mm-hmm. Altuting, where it was placed alongside his father and grandfather. 
A small memorial chapel was built in 1889 near the site where his body was discovered, and a cross was erected in the lake in his memory. At worst, Ludwig had a personality disorder. At best, he was just doing his best to hide his homosexuality while assuming a role he never wanted to play in the first place. As an aside, the castles that many thought would doom the state of Bavaria have, in fact, more than paid for themselves several times over as popular tourist attractions. Oh, I bet. Neuschwanstein was the inspiration for Cinderella's castle, and the palace in particular held many modern marvels during its construction, including power generators, electric lights, running water, flush toilets, and telephone lines. That's crazy. Keep in mind, they first started building it in 1868 in the fucking mountains. Yeah, middle of nowhere. His beloved cousin Elizabeth said it best, quote, The king was not mad. He was just an eccentric living in a world of dreams. They might have treated him more gently and thus perhaps spared him so terrible an end, end quote. Yeah. And that is the story of the mad King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Sad. Yeah. One of the theories that I forgot to include in there, because there were so many, was Mm -hmm. that the fishermen that I mentioned who helped find his body had actually been hired by the king to help him escape. And he was supposed to sort of ferry him further into the lake where a bunch of people who were loyal to the king were going to wait to try to like help him escape the country. And then if he got shot. And as he was getting into the boat, he was shot in the back. So the fisherman kind of panicked and like rode away, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. My name is Mike Morford. Some of you may know me as co-host of the podcast Criminology. I'd like to tell you about a solo podcast that I host, which is very close to my heart. It's called The Murder of My Family. We've all heard about horrible murder cases in the news, both solved and unsolved. Most of the time, we listen for a moment and then go about our daily routine. But have you ever wondered who those murder victims were or thought about their backgrounds? They're more than a blurb in the news or a statistic. They were real people living real lives. They were someone's child, parent, sibling, or friend. In The Murder of My Family, I try to get to know those victims with the help of the people that knew them best, their family members. Together, we talk about the lives and tragic deaths of their loved ones, as well as the ripple effect the murderers had on surviving friends and family. Some of the episodes feature high-profile cases you're probably familiar with, like the Colonial Parkway murders, the Delphi murders, or the Golden State Killer murders. But many other cases are ones from small towns all over America that barely made the news. There are dozens of episodes of The Murder of My Family available right now to binge on. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And this week's podcast plug is the Murder in My Family podcast from Abjack Entertainment. Ooh, are they specific? Hosted by Mike Morford, a.k.a. Morph who is the co-host of the Criminology Podcast, Murder in My Family gives family members of murder victims a voice and a platform to share their stories. Okay. So basically, he gives a brief synopsis of the case, and then he interviews the family members to kind of give them an opportunity to kind of share what they know about the case. Not all of them are able to give tons of details because nine times out of ten, it's still like an ongoing investigation. Yeah. Or it's like a cold case and they don't have access to the case files. So, but we'll have a link to that show in the show notes. Awesome. And this week's listener question comes from Dustin of the Sandman Stories Presents podcast. Okay. Thank you, Dustin. And he asks, what old fashioned punishment for criminals is the one that gives you the willies? Drawing and quartering. Oh, yeah, that's one. Yeah. 
minus the blood eagle. Do you know what that is? Oh, yeah, but you should you should explain. Because drawing and quartering, I mean, you can draw by horse and split in four parts. All right. Slowly. Okay. So this was a Viking torture method. So the ritual execution of the blood eagle is when victims were kept alive while their backs were sliced open mm-hmm. so that their ribs, lungs, and intestines could be pulled out into the shape of bloody wings. Oh, okay. Yep. I'm really glad I haven't had breakfast yet. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, pretty bad. Pretty violent. So to follow that up, what's something <laughs> else you'd like to share? I moved. Yay. I moved and I really like my new apartment and we don't have office desks or chairs or dining tables or a couch (laughs) but uh we're getting there we're getting there slowly but surely that's awesome i'm excited to make this a home awesome that's one good thing for you things have been going well with noom i did have a couple of slip-ups this weekend which when we're recording we're recording on labor day weekend slip-ups don't exist in weight loss so it's just they're learning experiences it's something where I should have used more of my psych tricks, like using a smaller plate, you know, things like that. Yeah. So it's, I'm not going to consider it like a failure. I'm going to consider it a learning opportunity because prior to this weekend, I was down nine pounds. So obviously something is working. Yeah, but it's a slow process to do it the right way and you're doing it the right way. So it's just one more step I need to take in my weight loss Mm -hmm. journey and... And how long have you been doing it? Uh, a little over two weeks. So Yeah. Yeah. So this was not a failure at all. This was you being a person celebrating with people and eating during a uh, type of celebration where food is one of the key things. Yep. And you helped me move and you did a lot of other stuff. So, I mean. Yeah. And, and I'm not going to consider it a failure because on Saturday, I did go for a three mile walk with Thomas. When we were up north. So, I mean, I was active. And yeah, like you said, I helped you move. Which is Uh, probably why you ate more. You know, like you ate more because you burned more calories and your body needed it. So it's not definitely not a slip up. It's your body telling you what you need. And even though it's like a quote unquote slip up, I wasn't over my calories by any huge margins. It was just something where I was eating more red foods than green foods. So again... Whatever, but yeah, hell yeah, but yeah, good on you. So then that's been going well, and I've been, I think, since last Tuesday doing gratitude journaling again. Nice, and I feel like that's really helping improve my mood. That's awesome. So, two good things. It's a twofer. That's really great. And on that note, let's shut her down. Yep. It's getting hot in this closet. (laughs) (laughs) Stuck inside the closet. It's hot inside this closet. (laughs) You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We're also on YouTube, so you can find us over there. We have a P.O. box, so you can write to us or send us whatever at yieldcrimepodcast, P.O. box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota 55092. You can also email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And just as a reminder, there's an E in old. If you just send it to regular 
ye old with no e it's not going to come to us i don't know whose email address that is yeah probably somebody who's like what is happening (laughs) you can leave us a five-star rating and review which is a great way to support the show if you'd like to help us out but can't do so financially. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Good Pods. And I've actually started including links to all of those for easier access in the show notes. Awesome. And this week's review comes from Brigglepuss on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> awesome. And they say, what a great podcast. Not only great chemistry between the two hosts, but actually sourcing the material in the description is awesome. Big fan, five out of five. Thank you. That's so nice. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so on Buy Me a Coffee to leave a one-time donation. You can also support us by joining our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month, which will get you early ad-free access to our episodes. And obviously, if you join at the $5, 10 or $15 tiers, you'll get more benefits. You can also support us by heading over to our merch store, which is Public, and picking up one of our fun designs. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.